0: So this past summer, uh, a group of us from South Point and a couple of other churches um, got the opportunity to go and serve uh, with our global partner, Missions of Hope, and we flew to Nairobi, Kenya, um, one of the areas that they serve in, uh, to work with this organization. and And most of us, a vast majority of our group, had never been on this trip before, never been to Nairobi or Kenya, and many of us who went had never even been like out of the country and so you know there's a lot of anticipation we spent months in preparation for the trip meeting together to understand what we would be doing and what we would experience and all those kinds of things in preparation for the trip we did a lot of fundraising in, in order to be able to pay for our time there and just a lot of things leading up to it and after like an 18 hour 18 hours worth of flights, we finally landed in Nairobi, Kenya. And there was kind of this, like, sense of both exhaustion and relief at the same time. And, uh, and, and anticipation of what it would be like to even go through, like, customs there. And we made it through okay after a couple of hours, um, after these long flights. And then we discovered that a couple of our bags didn't quite make it all the way to Nairobi. Um, and then we load on a bus, and we end up going to the place that we would stay. And I would say, like, all of us are kind of, like, excited about what we're going to experience, but we're also just, like, completely spent from everything that we had gone through. But then we pull onto the place that we're staying, and greeting us there are the, is a whole line of the people who work at the place that we stay, and they're singing to us. They're singing to us both in Swahili and English, and they're welcoming us, and they're dancing, and they're joyful, and they're excited. And, and as we're like, we're like little kids plastered against the bus, watching them sing to us, and we're like, okay, let's get out, and we come out, and they greet us with hugs and, and just excitement about us being there. And they us like, some of the best juice that I've ever tasted. I don't even know what it was, but it was awesome. It was incredible. And then they said, hey, come on inside. We prepared a little snack for you. Now, get, keep in mind that we were two hours late to getting there. It was almost midnight Nairobi time when we arrived. And we'd go into the place where we would eat all of our meals, and it wasn't a snack. It was a full-blown meal that they'd prepared for us. It was just this incredible, welcoming experience. This place did hospitality like no place I've ever experienced before. That was our experience the entire time with them that we were there. You could say it was kind of like a a really mountaintop experience. And then the next morning, we got on a bus, and we went to the place that we would spend most of our time while we were in Kenya. It was an area called the Mathari Valley, and it's in... Nairobi, Kenya, and the Mathari Valley, if if you're not familiar, if you've not heard us talk about it, basically it's one of the oldest and one of the poorest slums in all of Nairobi, in all of Kenya, really. It's one mile wide by three miles long, and it contains more than the population of Boston in that small area. There's no running water. The houses are made up primarily of whatever the people in that community could scrap together to build. Most of the houses are under 100 square feet. And they sleep anywhere from 4 to 12 people in those rooms. The The passageway between many of the houses are just wide enough for one person to walk through. And sometimes that's, when you're my size, even that is questionable. It's almost indescribable it is indescribable it's one of those things that you really have to see it you have to be there and smell it and and engage in it to really understand what that is like and we went from this incredible mountaintop experience to within less than 12 hours into this really really tough and difficult place it was a huge and drastic change in a very short time period. Maybe you've had a similar experience in your life where you've gone from the mountaintop to the valley in just a matter of hours. When this happens in life, it's almost like you get this emotional whiplash. It's, you feel disoriented, and it's really hard to even get your bearings again. I remember that night, We did a debrief every night, and most of us couldn't even put words to what we had experienced. I wonder if Jesus experienced this as he prepared for his mission. We're reading through a biography of Jesus written by a man named Matthew, who was one of Jesus' closest followers, and he was given a front row seat to this encounter with Jesus. and He does the same for us so that we... Anybody who reads this biography can, can know Jesus. Our hope and prayer is as we go through this together that we will be prepared, that we've been using this, this, uh, this metaphor of good soil, that, that we would be prepared just like good soil to receive whatever it is God wants to do with us. And we believe that when we spend time with Jesus, he changes us. Jesus prepared for the mission that he came to do. His mission was to come and to rescue us from our sin and its consequences, death. He came to die in our place to pay the price for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God, to one another, and, and really to all of creation. And last Sunday, we talked about how Jesus prepared by being baptized by John the baptizer. and John had been baptizing as people as a symbol of them turning from their sin, and, and yet here comes Jesus, and even though he was sinless and had really nothing to repent from, he himself was baptized, and he did this so that he could align himself with God's will, that he would come in our place, the place of a sinner, so that we could experience his life, and immediately after he comes out of the water, the Spirit comes on him and empowers him to do the the will of the Father, the things that God has called him to do. But that was only part of his preparation, as we'll see this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It's page 16 on the Matthew journals. If you haven't picked up a Matthew journal, you would like one. We have some back at Connection Point. You're welcome to have one so you can follow along with this, so you can take notes, or you can read this on your own, which is really what we encourage you to do. The words will be on the screen as well. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after having fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In another biography of Jesus, that word then is the word immediately. It's like right after Jesus comes out of the waters of the Jordan, he goes, he's, he goes out into the wilderness. One moment he's coming up from the waters of baptism and is greeted by the Spirit, and this Father speaks to him. He's affirmed in who he is. And the next minute he's going into the wilderness to face the enemy, you talk about a drastic change in just a few moments. And once again, this is going to be a very unusual way to prepare for a mission. Jesus doesn't go off into the wilderness because he needs some alone time or to get away from the hustle and bustle of the huge metropolis of Nazareth. However, in some ways, getting away from distraction and busyness makes some sense when it comes to preparation. I've done this myself, and maybe you have too, when you've got something big coming, maybe a project, or you just need some time to be able to think, to, to get away from the routine or the quiet, just to be able to sit and reflect and think, and so you're able to come back ready to do whatever it is you need to do. But that's not what the purpose of this retreat is. He's come to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Never never would I say, hey, you know what? I would really like to get a cabin in the woods in Maine for about three weeks just so I could be tempted by Satan. So why does Jesus go into the wilderness? How does this prepare him for his mission? And as followers of Jesus, how does this help us understand how we can prepare to become good soil? I want to look at three ways that Jesus prepares in the wilderness. The first is found in the very first verse, Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was being led by the Spirit. The same Spirit who descended on him after he came out of the water and who has empowered him to accomplish this mission. It's so subtle, but it's so important to understand that the first way that Jesus prepares is that Jesus is following the Spirit's lead. We believe that God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one being. This is called the Trinity. And there's this incredible, beautiful, and mysterious interconnected relationship between them. We see an example of this relationship at work here. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, and Jesus follows him. It's easy to read through the biographies about Jesus and think that he's acting alone. But the truth is, all the persons of the triune God are working throughout all of the Gospels, the biographies. In another place, Jesus says it this way. In John 5, 19, he says, Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. There's this connectedness, this interconnectedness in this perfect relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are continually working together, submitting themselves to one another in this perfect harmony and perfect love. And Jesus submits himself to the leading of the Holy Spirit, trusting him for whatever is coming next. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust him with our lives, and we follow him, And we give him control over our lives. God and the person of the Holy Spirit lives in us. I mean, just pause and think about that for a moment. I mean, it's easy just to say it. It's easy to read it. It's easy to hear it. But to really contemplate the fact that the God of the universe, the infinite God of the universe comes and he dwells in us. The Spirit works in us and he makes us more like Jesus. He reminds us of who Jesus is and and what he has done. He refines us as he helps us overcome the sin that we still wrestle with in our lives. And he comforts us in our time of loss and in the time of grief. But there's another way that the Spirit works in our lives. He leads us to do what God wants us to do. Good soil surrenders to the spirit's lead the spirit is so much more than our conscience he is the power of God in us he is the power of God to transform us and to make us more like Jesus he's also the one who empowers us to do what God wants us to do He doesn't make us and he doesn't force us. As we surrender to him and we submit our will to his, he then works in us and he works through us. Our part is to continually surrender. Just like Jesus, we need to do this daily. Actually, we need to do this moment by moment to be led by him how do you know that it's the spirit leading well I could spend a whole series on talking about that right I just don't have time to unpack all that but let me just tell you two foundational ways one is this the spirit will never tell you to do something that is inconsistent with the scripture or inconsistent with the nature of God Why is that? Well, one, because the Spirit is the one who inspired Scripture. (laughs) He's not going to tell you to do something that's against Scripture. And number two, the Spirit is God. He's not going to tell you to do something that God isn't. The second thing is this. The more that you read Scripture and spend time with God, the clearer the leading of the Spirit will become. Which leads us to the second way that we see Jesus being prepared in verse two, and after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. Why? Why did Jesus fast? I mean, wasn't it hard enough that to be in the wilderness, isolated from others for forty days and nights? And I love the part of that, the last part of that verse, which says he was hungry. It speaks to the humanity of Jesus, right? That he was fully God and fully human. And he felt everything that we feel, including hunger. I think there's so much more happening here than Jesus just simply going without food for 40 days. At the time of Jesus, someone would fast basically for three reasons as part of some sort of a a Jewish or Hebrew religious ceremony, or they would fast as a a sign of mourning, or they would fast to spend time with God. And since the first two don't seem to apply to this situation, it's safe to assume as fasting is to spend time with the Father, which is the second way I think that we see Jesus preparing is Jesus spends time with the Father. My guess is this is probably not the first time that Jesus has gone into the wilderness. In the Greek, it's aremos, which means desolate place or isolated place to spend time with the Father, but this is the first recorded time. And this becomes the pattern throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus continually goes off by himself into the aremos to spend time with the Father. Why? Because spending time with the Father is what Filled him. These times continued to prepare him for all that he had come to do. This is how Jesus describes his time with the Father when he's sitting with the woman at the well and the disciples had gone off to, to buy food and they come back and they say, hey, we bought food and Jesus says this in John 4, he says, I have food to eat that you knew nothing about. The disciples are like, what the heck? We just went to buy food. Time with the Father is what sustained him. And if this is true for Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, wouldn't we need to do this so much more? Good soil spends time with the Father. This is challenging. Our lives are are so busy and our lives are so noisy everything competes for our time and our attention we typically make time for everything except for the one who loves us most and who needs and who we need the most for hundreds of years followers of Jesus have engaged in practices to help build into their daily lives, their weekly rhythm of life, time with the Father. Throughout this year, we're offering equipping classes to learn some of these practices. We want to help anyone who wants to learn how to spend time with the Father to do that. The next practice we're offering is prayer and how how to communicate with God. It's an an incredible and super practical four-week class that's going to start next Sunday, February 4th, at 10.30, during the 10.30 service. Even, Even if that's all you come to on a Sunday morning, we would rather you go and spend time there than time in here. It's that important. Please invest in learning how to spend time with God. It's foundational. Even if you think you've got a good prayer life, this class will challenge you in new ways to communicate with God. Later this year, we're also going to offer a class in the practice of fasting that we see Jesus do here. There's so much that's misunderstood or underutilized in this practice today. I like what John Mark Comer has to say about fasting. He says this, The ultimate aim of fasting is to get in touch with our hunger for God. Hunger is the state of wanting or needing something you do not have. When we fast, we awaken our body and soul to its deep yearning for life with the Father. We want to be like Jesus. We are his followers. His desire was to spend time with the Father so he could do what he was called to do. We desperately need to spend time with our Father, not out of guilt or or a ritual or force, but out of a longing or a hunger to be with Him. Spending time with the Father prepares us for what He has called us to be and to do, which leads us to what we see Jesus do next. Verses 3 and 4, And the tempter came, Satan himself, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus had gone without food for 40 days and night. He's beyond hangry. (laughs) He's probably very vulnerable. In this moment. At least when it comes to the humanity of Jesus. And that's where the enemy. And that's when the enemy tempts him. But there's something deeper than hunger. That the enemy is challenging Jesus with. Did you notice what Satan says? If you are the son of God. Just 40 days before Jesus heard These words from the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At the core of this temptation, Satan is questioning Jesus' identity. Are you really the son of God? Then you prove it. But Jesus had prepared for this. He had spent time listening to his father, and Jesus knows who he is. This doesn't seem to be a way to prepare, but I would say this is probably the most foundational way to prepare. Satan is attempting to deceive Jesus by questioning who he is, to even question who the father said he is. This is essentially how Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, he was able to get them to question the goodness of God. He got them to believe that God was holding out on them, and by eating the fruit, they would become like God. They questioned their identity and who they were in relationship to God. But Jesus knows who he is. He has nothing to prove. What the Father has said is enough and how the father sees him is enough and at the same and the same should be true for us as well we need to know who we are in christ because good soil knows that our identity is in christ satan is the deceiver and the accuser he deceives us by distorting truth Then, once we are deceived, he accuses us of doing wrong. (laughs) To try to fill us with guilt and shame and ultimately to isolate us from God. That's the game that he plays with us. And he often attempts to distort our identity in Christ. This happens when we are vulnerable. I don't know about you, but the times that I seem to struggle the most are the times when I'm tired or the times that I'm hungry, or the times that I've been just really, really busy, like overwhelmed with everything that's happening in life. Those vulnerable moments, it's easy for us to forget who we are in Christ. This happens when we live in our past mistakes or in our present mistakes. We remember, you remember that he's the accuser, and he wants us to live in the guilt and the shame. To doubt our identity in Christ. How could someone who did blank or someone who continues to struggle with blank be in Christ? This happens when we try to find our identity in other things. The enemy can lead us to believe that there are other better things or people that we can find our identity in. In our career, we define ourselves by our job, or our professional success, or in our relationships, and our, role. our roles can become identities. Like we can begin to see ourselves as, as parents and spouses and friends. In our achievements, we look for validation in what we accomplish or in the material success that we produce. In our appearance, we find our self-worth based on how we look and how society views us. We can find our identity in social media by creating and projecting an identity so that we can be liked and seen. We can find our identity in our hobbies and our interests. What we do in our free time starts to define who we are. And we can even find our identity in trying to be popular, seeking the approval and the recognition of others. And Jesus' reply to Satan's temptation is so interesting. He quotes From Deuteronomy 8.3, it says, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this passage that he references, God is talking to his children. He's talking to to the Israelites after they've spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Get the connection, 40 days of fasting, 40 years in the wilderness. Another callback to the fact that Jesus is the new Moses. (laughs) And God is reminding the Israelites of who he is and who they are. Specifically, he was reminding them of their identity as his children. These are the words of God. What matters most is how God sees us, not what we produce or not what we consume, but who we are in Christ. So what I'd like to do as I close this morning is to use God's words to describe how He sees us and what our identity in Christ means. Romans 15, 7, you are accepted. John 5, 16, you are chosen. Galatians 4, 7, you are free. 1 John 1, 9, you are forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new person. John 1, 12, you are a child of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 23, you belong to Jesus. Romans 6, 4, you have a new life. Philippians 3, 20, you are a citizen of heaven. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are a part of something important. Romans 8, 38 and 39, you are loved forever by God. Galatians 3, 13, you are Rescued Romans 8 17, you are an heir of God. Ephesians 2 19, you are part of God's family. Ephesians 1 3, you are blessed. Colossians 2 10, you are complete in Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5 20. You are God's ambassador. This is how God sees you. This is your identity. This is my identity in Christ. Let these shape you. Let these words define who you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of how Jesus prepared for his mission and how this helps us become the place that we, that we can be prepared to receive what it is you want to do in us through your spirit, God. I pray that you would just continue to work and move as only you can in our lives and continue to make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.